And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I first met Jennifer Granholm, who was then governor of Michigan in 2008, when we recruited her to play Sarah Palin in the uh, debate prep for Joe Biden. Uh, But I had watched her for years before that, governing a state that had huge economic challenges. And before that, as attorney general, as one of the leading attorney generals uh, in the country, one of the most uh, interesting, candid, thoughtful uh, people I know in politics. Uh, So I was happy to sit down with her the other day at the Institute of Politics, where she's been a fellow this spring. Jennifer Granholm, welcome here and to the Institute of Politics. So we, glad to be here. a great fellow oh, it's totally at the fun. Institute. So the thing I hear when I raise your name among a lot of Democrats is profound anger at your parents for being Canadians, uh, because that's where you were born, <laughs> which uh, kind of puts a... a, a uh, crimp in the whole grand home for president idea. Well, it's a good thing I'm not a threat to anybody. <laughs> I kind of like that. What, tell me about uh, your folks. And, and you, you spent just the first four years of your life, right, in Canada? Yeah, I was brought to uh, California when I was four, uh, along with my brother and my parents. My, my, uh, my, I'm a, my dad uh, comes from an extremely poor background. His father was an immigrant from Sweden, came over during the Depression, and they lived in a cottage that had no running water, uh, totally poor. And um, so he became a teller at a bank in Vancouver. Before we leave this, I I read somewhere uh, a tragic story about your grandfather. Tell, Tell me that. The My grandfather, um, who came over from Sweden, um, came over during the pre- Depression. To Canada. To Canada, right, and met my grandmother, uh, who was from Norway. And so they made their home in this tiny little town in British Columbia called Penny, a town of 50 people. It was a logging town. And during the Depression, they, they had three children. Um, my grandfather could not find work. And so he killed himself. Um, And my dad was always told that he was shot during a uh, hunting incident. But he killed himself in order that my grandmother could have a widow's pension. How did you find out? How did your family find out? Nobody knew this until my brother did some research, went back and looked in old papers, and and saw the incident. And then when I was governor... I went to Sweden to recruit some uh, companies, uh, and um, they did a genealogical trace, because Granholm is a Swedish name. Mm -hmm. And uh, I met up with my grandfather's children, etc., and they said, oh my God, it's the missing, you guys are the missing piece in the family, because Hugo, who was my grandfather, killed himself. And it was... It was a huge shame in the family because, and they wouldn't even bury, you know, they, there's no tomb, there's no gravesite or anything mm. there because you weren't supposed to do this. <coughs> and um, so it was only on this trip to Sweden, and I brought my parents on this, on this trip to Sweden, and it was a hugely emotional reunion for them all. I bet. And um, so it, so anyway, the bottom line is, my dad's dad was super poor. My dad was super poor. He ended up being, um, uh, in, after high school, got a job as a teller at a bank, Toronto Dominion Bank, in Vancouver, and met my mother, who was also a teller there. And at the time, um, the the banking, the bankers, the banks in the U.S. were looking for people who were good bank, good employees of banks in Canada. For some reason, they thought that the Canadian banking system was, hmm. was strong and had good training. And so they um, went to the Tor- Toronto Dominion Bank, and my dad applied. And so Security Pacific National Bank paid for them to come to California, um, you know, just as tellers. 
And uh, my mom was not, didn't, uh, by then had kids and she was staying home. But so he sort of worked his way up in the banking system from that in California. And you guys had sort of your classic sort of middle class? Um, lower like, middle class, I'd say. But yes, you know, and, but as we got older, certainly more middle class, we started out, you know, really scraping, but he moved up, became manager of banks, and then ended up being the president of a, an Asian bank wow. in San Francisco. So yeah, he really, my dad, he's an amazing, just an amazing person, amazing guy. You went down to LA oh. with a mind toward being uh, in show business in, in Hollywood. I'm so sorry you have to raise this sordid <laughs> portion of my life. Sordid in the sense that it was hey, such a disaster. It was such a disaster. So after high school, yeah, I um, I was totally, uh, you know, I wanted to try to go to L.A. and see if, you know, I could become the female Sir Laurence Olivier or something like that. It was a horrible experience. A, I can't sing, I can't dance, and I can't act. So... What was I thinking? So you do what people who can't sing or dance or act do. You you, you went on the dating game. <laughs> that is it. It's so depressing. <laughs> you have to raise this, of course. How do you, get, how do you get on the dating game? It takes no talent, I can assure you. Um, I have no idea. I can't even remember. You, you, know, you show up and say, and they say, okay, we'll bring you on. I, have no idea. I don't even remember. I do remember that they write the questions <coughs> for you. You know, I was the asker. Of the yes. questions. Yes. Anyway. So uh, moving on. <laughs> but but You did move on. I did. And and I as I have to say, because I don't want to be the only former governor who had that experience, Arnold Schwarzenegger was also on the dating game, although not at the same time. That's <laughs> and my probably excuse. not in the same role, right? You isn't it He was probably an asker too. Yeah. I, I don't know, I don't maybe know. back then. I don't know if he was like, you know, <laughs> pumping iron at that point or not. <laughs> You, so yeah, you, at some point you decided that this was not. Yeah. The, so uh, I was a tour guide at Universal Studios before it was all mechanized, you know. And in between tours, you sit in the back and wait for your call. And so I would just be reading back there. And I started to pick up um, philosophy, and I picked up Will and Ariel Durant's The History of Civilization, and I started to go through it. And I was like, oh, What am I doing? What am I doing with my life here? And I was also working on John B. Anderson's independent presidential. Oh, no kidding, nineteen eighty. Yeah. Huh? Mm-hmm, nineteen eighty, and so, and I became a citizen at that point too. I had been in the pipeline since I was sixteen, and I be, you know, I was the first in my family to become a citizen. So that's interesting. What what attracted you uh, to a to politics and b to John Anderson, who was a Republican congressman from Illinois who ran as an independent for president in nineteen eighty. Right, I, I really liked his courage, and I had come from. My parents are Republicans, and um, during high school, I worked for Gerald Ford, and uh, went door to door in California for him, and I so I moved from Gerald Ford to John B. Anderson to then you know. Mondale. Then I really went, you know, continued to move to the <laughs> left after, as I joke, I got higher education and um, saw the saw the light. That, but yeah. that's what a lot of people think about Democrats, you know. I know it's not. It's a really terribly elitist thing to say. But yeah. um, but but I, you went to you went up you went to Berkeley. I did. I went to Berkeley. That I wanted move anybody to the left. Well, and it was a great eye opener. Actually, I majored in political science and French, and I spent a year in France as well as part of that experience. And uh, I totally loved it. And then went to um, I, since I was the first person in my family to go to college. Um, and did you? Was that? Um, I mean, that Berkeley was a, and it continues to be a great school. But the University of California system was sort of the crown jewel yeah. of. Of state college systems. Yeah, they really, I mean, California's, the history of this, they had this unbelievable master plan for for higher education where, you know, they had the state school system, obviously the university system Mm -hmm. in Berkeley is the sort of, you know, flagship of Mm -hmm. those schools. And so I felt really honored that I actually, that I got into Berkeley and, um, you know, I did, I did really well there and, 
And uh, so when I got into uh, what was the, what was the atmosphere on campus like then? Um, it was active, you know, in the but 60s, I was working. Berkeley full, was I was working almost full time. Ground zero for to, activism. Yeah, totally. It it was very active, and you know, this whole area in Berkeley called Sproul Plaza, which is where the free speech movement began, and all of that. It's still a really active area, although not as much as you would. I shouldn't say that. When when Berkeley gets a reputation for um, denying free speech, yeah. which we've seen, how do you feel about that? When uh, about Ann Coulter, well, for example, what makes being- me mad about it is one. The people who are protesting are not Berkeley students. I mean, the Berkeley students who are there, they are like 4.3 GPA high schoolers who came to Berkeley and are, are students. They're totally nerdy. They're really, you know, they're really, for the most part, they're really just really studious, good, smart kids. And so the, the fact that Ann Coulter generates protests, that's often from outside and, and some suggests that it is uh, there's purposeful invitations going to people who have extreme views, like Milo Yiannopoulos, who is another mm-hmm. one, in order to get a confrontation happening on the campus. So, yeah, but it seems you know we we wrestle with it here. I know, of course, uh, you know, um, if you believe in free speech and you believe that. You know that there ought to be a contest of ideas. Yep. Um, the notion of shutting speech down. No, no. Of course, you is, don't want to do that. You yeah. want to have free speech, and you want to have safe speech, right? So the, that's really the struggle. How do you have free speech in a place where the free speech movement was born, and make sure that people are not hurt in the process? And that's what they're grappling with. Well, safe safe speech. You mean safe from safe from harm? Like you, you know, if, like if physical there's death violence, threats, or yeah, physical yeah. violence. I mean, that's you're not what talking I mean. about safe from ideas that oh, are no, offensive. Oh no, no, no. I'm sorry. I don't even mean to suggest that. No, mm-hmm. I'm talking about making sure that people who go are are not physically hurt in some way. So you went from uh, from Berkeley to Harvard Law School, which is quite a journey from uh, where you began with your folks in Canada. Yeah, no, believe me, it was when I got into Harvard, you know, and I had only gone to public schools all my life, and, and being the first to go to college, it was like, whoa! You know, things, she's arrived. Oh, my God, Harvard, what What have we done? It was an amazing thing for them yeah. and for me. Certainly. Yeah, and what was that experience like? I know one of your classmates was uh, my old buddy Ron Klain. Yeah, who, um, he's so great. W- was a chief of staff to Joe Biden mm-hmm. and the great one of the great debate strategists in, uh, in yeah, Democratic politics. Yeah, we had a politics. lot. There were a lot. I mean, um, Barack Obama was was a, a couple of years behind me, mm-hmm. um, so we didn't overlap. But, you know, like uh, Elena Kagan, my, I met my husband at Harvard, and, you know, he was one year ahead of me. She was she was in his class. Mm-hmm. And, and then we just had a lot of great people. But that's what was amazing about it for someone like me to meet all of these, I mean, especially like the women that I met, these women, I met more women who wanted to be president. I was, I was like, this is awesome. No, it was a great place. It really was a fantastic place to learn. And did you know when you were in law school that you wanted to go into public no. service? Well, public service, yes. Not politics. Not, not, politics. not elected politics. Not, not me being elected. I thought that... Uh, that I wanted to work to get people elected. And um, in fact, my when I met my husband, who um, is from Michigan, and I, so I married Michigan, right? Um, he thought that when he was growing up, he was either going to be um, a pope or president. <laughs> that was his trajectory, right? Yeah. And, uh, and so... Good to have good self. I know, right? He was, you know, yeah. he was doing all of this great stuff. And so I was happy that I met somebody who really wanted to change the world in some way. Um, you know, he didn't become Pope, but he did become a saint for marrying me. Yeah, and, well, uh, well, well, let me ask you about that, because it's sort of interesting. You, He had these ambitions, mm-hmm. and you wind up as governor of Michigan. Yeah. And it does, how does that... How does that work, yes, right? How yes, does that work at home? Yeah. yeah so, so it, it, interesting because when we got married, we got married, and uh, we were in marriage prep in the Catholic faith. Our priest, at who was a priest in Boston or in um, in Cambridge, he said, uh, you know, he was asking about our future and all of that, and he knew that Dan wanted to be um, go back home to Michigan and be elected in some way. And so he asks Dan during the preparation, what if the party comes to Jennifer and wants her to run for senator or something wow. like that? 
And um, so those priests are always politically very, savvy. They are savvy. Yeah. He was certainly, and I was like, Psh, "That's not going to happen." And Dan was, you know, he thought he said, "You know, if she, I would be behind her a hundred percent if she wanted to do that." And fast forward. So the priest picked up the phone, called a few friends in Michigan, <laughs> in Michigan, and, and said, "I cleared the path yeah, here." Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. It wasn't quite the priest. Yeah. But yeah, no, I was approached and asked uh, eventually to run. So. And you went back to Michigan and you clerked for, for Damon, Damon Keith. Keith. Yeah. He's kind of a legendary figure around the Yeah, Detroit. I wanted to be a civil rights lawyer and I t- took all these advanced con law classes when I was in law school to be able to further that. And Damon Keith has this, uh, has this incredible reputation in Michigan for being sort of the father of civil rights law. He was you know, first African-American to be appointed on the district, uh, second on the district court, first to be the chair. He's on the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. So I clerked for him on the Sixth Circuit. So I was, uh, I was so honored to be part of his family. And he's still, he's alive today. He's still, uh, I consider him, I call him my father in Michigan. He's just been a great mentor to me. And it was a natural thing for you because you at Harvard, you edited uh, a journal that dealt with Civil rights. Yeah, I was the editor-in-chief of the Civil Rights, Civil Liberties Law Review, which was, again, furthering what I really wanted to do, which was to do civil rights law. I came, I clerked in Why? What what drew you to that? Because I wanted to be a voice for those who didn't have a voice. I really wanted to be able to be the lawyer for people who didn't have means and who were wronged in some way. I felt that very deeply. I was really big in the... Um, protests at Harvard over the investments in South Africa. I was um, a leader of that. I was part of the, there was a group that was elected to be representatives of the students, and I was elected uh, on that platform to be uh, urging Harvard to divest from its holdings in companies that did business in South Africa. So I really, uh, I wanted to be in the midst of that. So when we moved back to Michigan, we moved into Detroit. We really, we um, both were working sort of in the political sphere for the Wayne County Executive. Um, Ed McNamara. Ed McNamara. Kind of a legendary political figure around there as well. He sort of was a mentor as well to both of us. Um, So, so, and, and when we moved back, I also worked on the, Dukakis campaign and got to know a lot of the folks who were in the Democratic political party in Michigan. And and then, um, you know, I ended up becoming a federal prosecutor uh, for a number of years, which I totally loved doing, and then was asked to come back. And you're pretty successful. Yeah, I had a, had a... You had, had a pretty a, good good record, I did. as Donald Trump would say. I did. I did. I had a good, uh, good record. And I uh-huh. loved that. I loved... Yeah being in front of a jury and, you know, owning the courtroom and all of that. Yeah. So if, that's you know, another kind of acting. It is a, f- a form of acting, I would say, but it's also <laughs> with a mission, yes. you know, yes. of, uh, of keeping communities safe. Yeah. And, and, and this led to you becoming attorney general of Michigan. Right. I was, uh, after I was uh, a federal prosecutor, I was asked by Ed McNamara, the Wayne County executive, to come back and be the corporation counsel for Wayne County. So then I had both criminal and civil experience. I ran the county's law department. And because I had known so many and been working on political campaigns in um, the Detroit area and in Michigan, some people from the party came and said to me, um, why don't you, because Frank Kelly, who was then the attorney general. Been there for like since the uh, glacial. Yes, he was period. the longest serving public servant in America Twice at the, the point or age. something like that. Yes. 37 years or 37 something. years. Yeah. That's exactly right. And he was called the eternal general. But he decided to step down. And so the the folks approached and asked whether I would be interested in running. And I was, again, what? No way. Because at that point I had three young children and I go home and, you know, tell Dan, can you believe they asked me to do this? And he's like, what? Of course you should do it. Of course. I got the kids. Don't worry. We can make this work. So, was- Yeah, you know, that I, I don't think um, – I, I think when a, when a man uh, of whatever age you were at the time, relatively young, uh, gets asked to run for an office or runs for an office – Nobody says, well, how's this going to affect the family? Well, they do. I think they do. I mean, I, I think I don't think always... they do enough. Well, maybe not I mean, enough. I'm talking now as someone who, did, who, who didn't do as well by his family as he should have in those early mm-hmm. years when I was involved in politics and not even as a candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think there's this presumption that 
you know, mom's going to take care oh, of it. Oh, for sure. I think that there is a presumption. And, you know, it's this, it would be, uh, you know, Dan is, I, I wish you were sitting here, my husband, because, you know, it's not been an easy road for somebody who had ambitions too, right? Yeah. And he's a jock and he's a competitive guy and, you know, but he was ultimately just, I mean, he's always been my best friend and he has been, he's just an amazing human being and partner. Mm-hmm. And so he really sacrificed for a lot of years, um, taking the primary parent role, um, making sure the trains were running on time, as well as doing his outside stuff. So he's he's an amazing soul. I'm so mm-hmm. in love and grateful to him. Well, he's not sitting here, but hopefully he'll take a, a few minutes and listen to this podcast and He'll know how you feel. Yeah, he he knows. He knows. (laughs) We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with Jennifer Granholm. So tell me about the job of Attorney General and and how you took to it. Oh, such a fun job. I mean, the Attorney General job, for anybody who's listening who's you know, young person who wants to know what, what is the best political elected job, Attorney General is... It's got to be near the top of the list because it's so great. You're going after bad guys. You're total, you know, you're targeting the things you want. You've got tools to be able to make things happen for people uh, and to protect people. So it's a great job. I completely loved it. Completely loved it. And did it so well that you ended up being a candidate for governor yeah, four years that's, later. You know, the irony about it is that I, I would have stayed in that. I mean, we have term limits in Michigan, so I could have only stayed in a position for two terms. The term limits kicked in after the previous attorney general had left. But um, but when I was elected, I had a Republican governor and a Republican House and Senate and Republican, you know, Republicans controlled state government at the time. So as the attorney general, I was targeted by a number of them. My off The office was to reduce the powers of the attorney general, et cetera. But we were able to buy, beat them back um, when I, because I was the only uh, Democrat really in statewide elected office, we had, you know, Democratic senator, U.S. senators, but the in-state office, the party came again and said, you got to do this because there's nobody sort of in the pipeline in that way. So, yeah, and what did you think when about that? Did you I, have hesitance oh, about it? Oh, totally had hesitance about it because, A, I loved my job, and, B, we, there, were, there were two really good candidates in the primary that ended up running. One was the former governor, uh, former Democratic governor, Jim Blanchard, mm-hmm. who's a terrific person, and the other one was David Bonnier, mm-hmm. who was— Former congressman. Right, former congressman, very strongly supported by labor, and another tremendous person. So— you know, I was, I really had to think about it because they were, they're terrific, you know. Um, but, you know, you do a lot of research to see who's most likely to win. And, you you know, after it was three terms then of John Engler, again, term limits had just kicked in. Um, you know, there was a lot of hunger for a, to a sure Democratic win. Mm-hmm. And um, so, not that I would be sure, because we certainly had a general election to go through. But I think, uh you know, I won the primary and ended up winning the general obviously. against the lieutenant governor. But I think that it was predestined. If your if your opponent's name is Posthumous, I know his name that, was Dick Posthumous, Richard yeah, Posthumous. Yeah, that's not really the, a bad. That, that doesn't in, that doesn't imply a great future. You know what I mean? So uh, I think he's heard that line. Maybe I'm sure he has. Yes, I'm sure he has. But um, I'm sure there were days after that. When you longed for the those fun days back at the attorney general's office, because you really became mm. governor at a difficult time uh, for Michigan. Michigan had been going through difficult times for a lot of the hollowing out of the industrial Midwest was felt very strongly in Michigan, and you took office in the middle of a recession. Yeah, it's you know I I we're here at the Institute of Politics and we have all these great office hours and I tell these young people who are seeking advice I say to them if you're going to be running for office choose your timing <laughs> well because I um, you know I came in in 2003 we were just at the tail end of mm-hmm. a, of a recession uh, and obviously Bush was president and we you know everybody was saying to me at that point 
because of Michigan's industrial base, when things are in recession, nobody buys big products that are manufactured like vehicles. And therefore, we our, our line was when the nation catches a cold, Michigan catches pneumonia. But when there's a re- recovery, because there's pent-up demand for vehicles, we come out very strong. So people were predicting that since we were at the tail end of this recession, that after my first year in office, Michigan would be rebounding, creating jobs, etc., but then we found, and in, at the tail end of that recession, that something had changed, that there was this structural change in the economy, that those jobs that had come back before when the factories closed or, or laid off went into hiatus, they weren't opening up again. And it's, it was weird because now all of the suppliers were starting to go through bankruptcies to the auto industry. So the tier one, the tier two, the the tier three suppliers, the whole spate of them were going through bankruptcy. And we we recognized quickly that this was a structural change, not a cyclical one in Michigan. And that we had to really, uh, one, help to diversify the economy so that we add new legs to our economic table other than manufacturing, but also help to protect people as we were moving from sort of one economy to another. Let me ask you, how much of the change in Michigan was related to factories closing up and moving overseas, auto plants and other manufacturing, um, and how much of it was related to uh, companies rationalizing their operations and automating mm-hmm. uh their plans in the in the earlier part of the decade of in the 2000s so much of it was related to trade um you know i campaigned on this whole nafta and cafta have given us the shafta (laughs) but um uh but after they had done what they could especially the suppliers i think the suppliers were getting pressured by the oems by the auto companies to offshore so that they could reduce their costs right so after that happened then um, automation really uh, kicked in and did the rest. And so the one-two punch in Michigan really meant that so much of our manufacturing footprint was you know, either moved offshore or automated, and the numbers just really diminished. Now, I say that, and I've seen it, and, and the de- depth of the pain of people who for generations have worked at this plant or for this company, it was very real for people. It was a, it was an existential crisis for the state, an identity crisis. And so, um, holding people through that was very, very hard. And because we lost jobs, you know, it was politically hard as well. Mm -hmm. So both pieces of that were, were really uh, a challenge. And, and, you know, now that I live, I live in, in California now and, and, um, you know, in the Silicon Valley area, at least, and have seen the other side of that uh, as well in terms of the opportunity of technology and what technology can do to upskill workers and how you can have workers work with the machines and not um, not be totally replaced by them. That that one-two punch really makes me think hard about what we need to be doing, um, not just as a Democratic Party, but as a nation, in terms of how we help to transition people into a really technology-infused economy. Our uh, colleague at CNN, uh, Van Jones, is very mm-hmm. much working uh, on this issue, and he's got his, I think it's called Code for America, is that what it is? But mm-hmm. he's got his, you know, this notion of training up uh, young people yeah. in, in inner cities to, yeah. to, to code and Take advantage it of the should be. Of the I mean, economy. coding should be a language that kids learn just like any other language. It should be mandatory, really. We should have every child in every elementary school learning how to code, and they've got great programs to be able to do that. But if if we don't, you know, we are going to be overtaken by our economic competitors. You really, um, your your tenure as governor was bookended by two economic. Uh, downturns. The first was a kind of normal one. The second was a catastrophe. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, the uh, the recession. The, the recession auto- of two thousand and eight. Right. And the auto bankruptcies. Right. Yeah. So I, that's where I was going. I, you. You. I was in the White House yeah. when the president was deciding what to do about the auto companies. You know, GM and Chrysler would have gone bankrupt at the end of two thousand and eight. The the trans the Obama team asked uh, 
President Bush to extend them a short reprieve so that uh, President Obama could have time to think about this. He put his auto task force together. And I remember those discussions in the White House were it was a very tough call because even in Michigan, you had polls where people said, we don't want to bail out the automakers because they felt the automakers had made a bunch of bad decisions over the years. And why should we have to uh, bail them out? And it was um, but the, it was the Michiganders in the in the in the meetings who were most passionate about Gene Sperling mm-hmm. was from Michigan. God bless Gene Sperling, who was really I mean, he and I were in constant contact about this and you know, and I think Robert Gibbs was also Robert very... was unbelievably moving. Yeah. He had worked in Michigan, Robert being President's press secretary worked in Michigan with Debbie Stabenow, yeah. the senator yeah. there. And he, I remember the meeting, the, the, the key meeting there where the two of them spoke and Robert said, you know, there are towns in Michigan that are already yeah. suffering depression-like uh, conditions. Um, it was, the whole thing was very fraught emotionally. There, were, there was this dis- dispassionate presentation of the numbers. And then there was the discussion of what it would have meant to mm-hmm. let the American auto industry mm-hmm. go. What would it have meant if uh, if the president had said, no, you know, we're not going to intervene here? Um, well, the auto industry, we would not have a U.S. auto industry today. I mean, the, the industry, you know, notwithstanding what Mitt Romney said, if they went into bankruptcy and there was not a debtor in possession, which is the United States government at this point, there would have been nobody stepping up because we were everybody was in recession. You would have seen a complete hollowing. I mean, Michigan was hollowed out to you know because of what was happening even in the bankruptcy and what had happened prior to that with the with the bankruptcies of the suppliers. But you would have also had a um, an America that didn't have a manufacturing backbone, which is what the auto industry is. The fact that America the, created the auto industry, right? America and. And people don't recognize that it is sort of the spine of manufacturing in the country. I mean, the steel industry supplies the auto industry. I mean, all of the, you know, all of the materials that go into it and the supplier base that goes into it are thousands and thousands of parts, not just in Michigan, but all across the country. And, And the president also wanted to move to a more clean energy economy. And that meant if the transportation sector didn't move into electric vehicles, and we didn't have a U.S. auto industry to do that, we would just be saying to our international competitors, well, come on in, you guys do it, and we won't do it. So the fact that the president was willing to step up to save, it was such a bold move. I mean, I don't know that people really understand the incredible incredible courage, but the incredible impact that that had for the country in saving that auto industry, the millions of jobs that would have been lost across the country. So I uh, I will forever be grateful to him for that. I remember where I was when I got the calls from him about going in, you know, all right, we're announcing tomorrow that GM is going into bankruptcy. I was still pushing, no, don't push them into bankruptcy. No one's going to buy a car from a bankrupt auto, you know, but he was coming back, you know, it's going to be quick. We'll make it yeah. turn around, you know. There was a plan for sure. Yeah, there was, a, there was a very good plan, but it was, I mean, I just, I cannot tell you the anxiety. I can't describe adequately the anxiety of people on the ground. When you go, you know, uh, on my way to church, going into uh, uh, what, is, what is known as a Big B's Coffee and having this guy, I mean, this is like one story of a zillion, a man, you know, an older a man who's like 50 years old, gray hair, come up to me and say, Governor, and then just start to, to sob in front of all these people, and he's so embarrassed that he's crying in front of people, and him saying, you know, my, my job is gone, and my kids are in college, and how do, I, how do I do this? Governor, can't you save? It is, and that happened. I, I'm so, this um, <clears throat> guy, looking into the eyes of people who through no fault of their own have lost their dignity because they've lost their job is so powerful. Yeah. We you know we've talked about this here uh more than a few times that uh what jobs are, you know, jobs are not just 
about paychecks. Jobs mm -hmm. are about dignity and self-worth and And people who've worked belonging. for decades yeah. or whose father, you know, parents worked for decades. Can I tell you a quick story? Yeah. So I, I tell this story as a defining moment of my gubernatorial experience, which was, um, you know, I got noticed that a big factory, a big refrigerator factory was going to go to Mexico in a little tiny town named Greenville, Michigan. And Greenville is a population of 8,000 people and almost 3,000 people worked at this refrigerator mm. factory, which was owned by Electrolux. And this was in my first year of being governor. And so when I heard this, I said, oh my God, there's no way, there's no way we're going to allow this to happen. Let me bring my whole <laughs> cabinet to Greenville and we will, you know, make them an offer they can't refuse. So, um, you know, not like a Chris Christie offer, but, you know, <laughs> a, an, you know, we want to put incentives on the table and stuff like that. Yes, gotcha. So we go to Greenville and we, we put all of these incentives on the table. I mean, just huge, like the UAW who represented the workers didn't want anyone to know what the level of concessions they were willing to make was. And, and we put, we said we would help to build them a new factory. We we're going to finance it, zero taxes for 20 years, all of this. And so Electrolux takes our list of incentives outside of the negotiating room. And, and in this negotiating room, like all of the grand poobahs of Greenville were there. It was like everybody was, you know, mm -hmm. on this. And they take the list and they go outside for 17 minutes. And they come back into the room. And they say, wow, this is the most generous any community has ever been in trying to save jobs. But there's nothing you can do to compensate for the fact that we can pay $1.57 an hour in Juarez, Mexico. Mm -hmm. And so we're going. And when that happened... It was like a nuclear bomb went off in that little community. Because in a town of 8,000, when almost 3,000 people work, it is a one-company town when you think of grandchildren and children and all of that. And on the month that the last refrigerator came off the assembly line, the people had a gathering, uh, the workers that they called the Last Supper. It was in um, Clackle's Orchard Pavilion. And I went to the Last Supper, even though I was not invited, because I was obsessed with this failure on my part of being able to keep the factory there. And as I go up to the first table, the guy stands up, and he's got his tiger cap on and tattoos on, and he pulls his two daughters, who are young teenagers, next to him, and he says, Governor, I want you to meet my daughters. He says, I've worked at this factory for 30 years. My grandfather worked at this factory. My father worked at this factory. I'm 48 years old. I went from high school to factory. And all I know is how to make refrigerators. And then he looked at his girls and he puts his hand on his chest. And he says, so, Governor, tell me, who is ever going to hire me? And that question was asked by everybody in Clackle's Orchard Pavilion that day. And it's been asked by everybody in one of the 62,000 communities that have lost factories since the beginning of this, dec of this century. So hearing you tell that incredibly moving story also um, suggests why there was a receptivity to a Donald Trump. Because he was speaking to that sense of loss. Absolutely. He was speaking to that loss of dignity and respect that people uh, felt there. Um, why was there not, and I know you were active in the Democratic campaign. You, you worked for a super PAC, that, a priorities that uh, was uh, set up to help uh, uh, Hillary Clinton, and you... You advised the campaign on on some issues. Why why was there not a uh, comparable effort on the part of Democrats to speak to these folks in an authentic way? I, I do think that um, we made some assumptions. Democrats did that. Of course, working people are going to support Democrats. Of course, the Republicans have policies that hurt people. So of course, they're going to be with us. And I don't think that we fully grasped the depth of this disequilibrium that people are feeling all across the country, because of the hollowing out of the middle class. And we as Democrats, or as people, as leaders, we don't even have a national jobs strategy. We don't have a national economic development strategy. Other nations have got them. 
we have had this hands-off laissez-faire trickle down and it has not worked and our other our competitors are only too happy to swoop in shame on us as democrats for not articulating a strategy and articulating that we see you we see your pain in a way that was uh effective yeah i also uh you know, I'm concerned. I mentioned automation earlier. I'm sort of obsessed by it. Yeah, I am too. Uh, because uh, you see these studies that say we're going to lose 40% of our jobs. I, I mean, new that. jobs may be created. Some new jobs may be created as well because of automation. But 40% uh, percent of our jobs, we know the driverless cars are coming online. We've had a right. lot of discussion here about that. Uh, it seems like this is a um, kind of hinge moment in our history and uh, you don't hear really bold discussion about what to do about right. it. I mean, even even from the left, you hear anger at corporate America, anger at Wall Street. But that's not really f- the fun, fundamental jobs. issue. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, first of all, you see, you hear people in Silicon Valley saying, "Let's just do a universal basic income," sort of as a uh, swage yeah. to their guilt about doing. Well, or maybe to keep the pitchforks from, from at bay. coming that way. Yes, you know? exactly. But here's what I here's what what is. Um, uh, is a light of hope for you. There is a study by uh, uh, a guy named James Besson, who's now at Stanford. He did an evaluation of 317 professions where technology had been introduced. So the classic example is like the ATM, right? And so ATM was introduced in the 70s. Toward the end of the 90s, it bec- they become ubiquitous. So would you think that there are more or fewer tellers since the introduction of the ATM? One might guess that there would be fewer tellers, right? But in 1970, there were 250,000 tellers. Today, there are 500,000 tellers. He found in every single one of the 317 professions that had technology introduced, in every single one, jobs were created, not lost, except for one. There was one job that went away, and that was elevator operator. Mm-hmm. So... My point in saying this is that there's been a lot of study done about how to upskill people with machines, how to use machines, and how to, let me just say this, we don't even build the machines in this country. If mm-hmm. we had an economic development strategy, right. we would be building the machines. Yeah. Germans have done a good Germans job Germans and this. Japanese, those yeah. are the two that have done yeah. it. We should create industrial clusters that build the most advanced stuff. And we don't do that. Well, the markets demand that we take another short break. So we'll be right back with uh, Jennifer Granholm. Did you know that Michigan was in jeopardy? I mean, did you have that sense as someone who is obviously very much uh, aware of the political pulse of that state that this was a problem? Greenville, the Greenville story happened in my at the end of my first year and when he said to me when the uh, representative from Electrolux said there's nothing you can do to compensate for the fact that we can pay a dollar 57 an hour and this was in Greenville I thought oh my god we have got Greenvilles all over this state what does this mean for all of these communities that have manufacturing facilities that could go to green that could go to war as Mexico. So we got inkling of it that this was, as I say, a structural change and not a cyclical one in the early two thousands, which is why we were so determined to add new sectors to the mm-hmm. economy so that we weren't just relying on manufacturing. But in terms of the um the Clinton campaign um, did you sound an alarm about Michigan at any point? Oh yeah, I mean, I you know, I I have um, I've been sort of a nag to everybody about us focusing on jobs, jobs. Hello, jobs is the number one issue that every poll is about this. We should be using, we should be like obsessed about using the word jobs, good paying jobs everywhere we go, and 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 she had. All of the right policies, really. She, I mean, the policies that they developed. I was actually on the transition team, and um, and you know that the, the policies that she was developing were all the right ones. And what we what we feels think, like there were that there were there were a lot of trees, but no forest, no sort of um, no value based sort of uh, 
discussion of the big issue, you know, of what jobs, why jobs yeah. is the thrust, what they mean to people. Um, yeah, I think this is, I mean. It was like position papers in search of uh, uh, defining. Yeah, and I, I don't want to you know. criticize really. I mean, honestly, because I think, you know, people put their heart and soul into this and to getting it right. And I think she was amazing. She is amazing in so many ways. But for our next candidate, if we do not speak to people's gut about this issue of jobs, their heart about it, in, and follow up with policy. As you know, people vote not with their heads, but with their heart and their gut. And we need to be on our knees. We, we need to be obsessed with this question. We need to lose sleep at night. I want leaders who lose sleep at night over this question about how to create jobs, good-paying jobs in America, in a global economy. I think we can own that. Donald Trump has a lot of rhetoric about it. We'll see what he does. But it is, he, he took that from us. Bernie had it, you know, Bernie talked a lot, obviously. He talked more about trade um, than how to create jobs, but, but, but he had that thread. We certainly identified the problem. Yes, this, this, yeah. this but the loss. solutions are really important. You know, yeah. we should be the place where all of this advanced manufacturing stuff happens. Yeah, you know, you, you heard a lot of people around the 100-day anniversary say, well, you know, people are still sticking with Donald Trump. Well, it's been 100 days, yeah, and most so people early. are sensible enough not to judge after 100 days. But there will come a point when the people who he said who he told he would improve their lives will make a judgment as to whether he did and will judge whether they have higher quality jobs. And uh, and if they do, he'll be in much better shape. If they don't, um, he could see defections. And it's, you know, I'm skeptical about whether anything he's outlined actually I haven't, is going to change the I mean, he's, he's going to do something on trade, perhaps. He, he's going to try to renegotiate um, NAFTA, and I think that's great. I think you should renegotiate NAFTA. You should close some of the civ-like What about withdrawing rules. from it? Um, I, think, I think that people are not afraid of trade. People who build things understand that we want trade and that we can export the question is, are we trading in a way that gives away the store to our economic... The fact that we've been... I mean, the, President Obama beefed up the number of cases that he brought on behalf of American employers at the World Trade Organization. That was good. But we still... We need a tiger at the World Trade Organization to stand up for people. But we understand that we've got to be able to, you know, make products stamped made in America and send them send them across the world and presumably need some sort of structure so that there is a yes. place to bring cases so we don't want I don't think that people want to see a small America a closed America an afraid America I think they want us to lead but lead in a way that doesn't give everything away to our economic competitors that lead in a way that has us leading and people coming behind in our draft that that is not the you know the fearful way that Donald Trump is leading, the small way, the small America, the build up the wall, the f you know be afraid of of the other, is really not who we are. And to me, I think Democrats need to take that back. You know, the Reagan's shining city on a hill. You know, when I was when I took my oath um, of allegiance to this country when I became a citizen, you know, I wanted to be part of a nation that welcomed immigrants to help build this young country as generations of immigrants have as generations have as your parents you know yeah, my, my, right, fa my father was an immigrant yeah. right and and every you know unless you're native american of course everybody somehow made their way here or were brought here but you know we that's what makes that that diversity is american exceptionalism mm -hmm. so democrats need to take back patriotism and define what america is on our terms and the fact that we have allowed it to be defined in a you know by a small and fearful way is I think such a disservice to the to the memory of Ronald Reagan for Pete's sake. Yeah. I also uh you know just looking back at the last campaign and I quite agree with you that the absence of a really strong economic message was a was a real problem. There also was a sense in in its place there were a lot of discussions about sort of niche issues that are important 
and I don't want to dismiss them, but uh, sort of sent uh, a message that said to uh, said to white working class voters around the country that they sort of weren't part of the equation, right. uh, and uh, you know, uh, ta- uh, strategically, I think that was. Uh, was a mistake. And I think, you know, um, there there are some who want to say, um, don't try to go after those voters because they're gone to us, to Trump. And I just disagree because a lot of them voted for Barack Obama. Right. And um, Who showed up. Who, who showed I mean, one up. One of the problems in the last campaign in Michigan and Wisconsin right. was that a decision was made that those states were secure enough that she Well, and to be fair, the polling showed that they were secure, right? Yeah. I mean, the polling was totally off. So everybody assumed that it was going to be fine. And we were all shocked. Yeah, but you know what? You, you and I have both been around politics uh, for a while. Um, sometimes your gut and what you see with your own two eyes yeah. Uh, can belie what the numbers say. That is uh, I've said this before. I have a house in southwest Michigan uh, near Buchanan, um, and it's it's near the lake, but it's off the lake. It's rural, and uh, there are a lot of uh, all my neighbors had uh, Trump signs in their yards. Yeah. Good people, great neighbors, you know, yeah. and uh, hardworking folks, um, and they had the feeling that you. Describe right. of of abandonment. A lot of there's a lot of factories that around that area that had left. And, right. Um, you cannot underestimate. Yeah, and I mean, I'm, I'm mad at myself, frankly, for not spent paying more attention to what was going on right around me and listening to uh, analytics people telling me that everything was going to work out all right uh, for Democrats because that was not the case. So you, one of the things that you've worked on quite a bit since you left is this whole issue of, of the green economy and green jobs. Um, talk to me a little bit about that and how much of the equation for the future those will be. Well, if you look at any of the projections from any of the economic analysts like Bloomberg New Energy Finance, they will show you. And if you're, if you're an accountant in a business and you're looking for trends, this sector, the clean energy sector, is huge. It's mm-hmm. huge. I mean, the projections of 20, 30, 40, 50 percent increases in demand for these products should be an indication that, hey, maybe there is an opportunity f- for us to be making these products. And maybe our arguments about climate change should be really arguments about who's going to make the products mm-hmm. that the climate, that the, that are going to demand reduction, that are going to produce reductions in climate change and that the rest of the world is going to be buying. There all the rest of the globe is already on this and they're buying these products from someone the question is where where are they going to get them from are they going to get everything from china everything from europe or are we going to get in this game and create jobs for our people so to me this is an economic issue and i think that in red states in purple states and in blue straight states this is a jobs message good paying advanced jobs just i mean when president obama decided that we were going to be building the vehicle battery for the electric car. He put out an RFP for, or or at least he put out a solicitation proposals for states that wanted to get a piece of that to get some of the pieces of the lithium ion battery in this country because Asia was doing all of that building. So we, we applied for it and Michigan got a good number of them. And we went around and got the supply chain for the lithium ion battery. You need a company to do anodes, cathodes, separator materials, electrolytes. We had nothing like that in this country. So I went to Japan and I went to Korea to try to bring that whole supply chain here. And we ended up creating an ecosystem which created jobs for people because of the opportunity that the Obama administration gave us to vie for that. If all of these economic competitors are doing that very thing, they are finding ways to get those jobs in their countries. And shame on us if we don't do the same thing. But so s- I think it's a huge opportunity for us. How worried are you about the policies of the Trump administration relative to clean energy? It's, it's insane. If, if he is talking about creating jobs and he is turning down the biggest opportunity for job creation in the 21st century, then he is harming us. If he pulls 
out of the Paris Agreement. I mean, where, where are this is the back to us climate being accord. small, yeah. right? The climate accord, us being small and fearful. You don't even have to talk about climate. Don't if you you know you're dealing with Republicans who think climate change is not real, whatever. Just look at the trends of demand, even if you don't believe it. Look at the trends for reducing for for demanding products that reduce you know climate change. We should be making those. Those are advanced, technologically uh, sophisticated products. We should be building them. And if we don't have strategies in place to create jobs that put people to work, shame on us. I can't let you go without asking you about this. Um, The first time that you and I ever had any significant contact was in 2008 when uh, you were recruited to play uh, Sarah Palin in the uh, debate preparations for uh, Senator Biden, the vice presidential debate. And, you know, this was a big assignment because nobody knew much about Sarah Palin and she was this very unusual character. And the whole point of these simulations was to make them as realistic as possible. So your job was to become inhabit the character of Sarah Palin. Uh, and, and what you you were remarkable. We all thought it was crazy. She couldn't be quite like this on a stage, and you just nailed it completely. How, do, how did you do that? How did you get ready for that? What was in your mind when you were I, doing this? So, well, you know, I, I wanted to take the assignment very seriously, so I did my research. I looked up, I watched every debate that she did uh, before coming to this assignment. I had briefing books of her policy positions. I, I, I wanted to take her seriously. At the time, she was starting to become a bit of a joke, right? But early on... Did you know her I knew, as yeah, a former governor? As a, as, a, as a fellow as a governor, governor, a fellow yeah. governor, right? And in fact, when McCain picked her, because she was very quiet in the governor's meetings, you know, there's all these this chest thumping around the National Governors Association meetings, and she was pretty quiet. And I liked her. I mean, she was, you know, she was a maverick, as she would say in in Alaska. She took on the establishment, but she was really thoughtful and you know quite quiet. And so when she was selected, you know, a few of us were on the phone. Sarah Palin. Wow, what a surprise. That was a shock. So I wanted to respect her and respect the character. So I did a lot of homework on it. And it was a totally fun assignment. Thank you for for tapping me. Yeah, so here too, your old acting uh, bug Whatever. Uh, play, p- played, a, played a role there. When you saw the debate... Uh, yeah. Did you feel good about what totally. you... Totally. In fact, after the debate was over, Joe Biden called me and I was like, Joe, we anticipated everything. You nailed it. It was so... It was perfect. Yeah. yeah. No, it was well, really... all the little asides you threw in there and you to betcha. uproarious laughter in the... Yeah, you betcha, in the uh, debate prep and uh, and Biden himself sort of cracked up a few times and we're like, Senator, you can't... You can't do you that, can't right? Do You're that. trying to throw and him so off, on. right? You gotta... uh, and, it, and it turned out to be... True to life. Yeah, it was a it was it was a great experience, and he did a great. I thought he was. You know, we were all worried that he was going to be condescending or sound condescending because he knew so much about Washington, and she was an outsider and trying to lure him into those traps. And uh, at the actual debate, he was phenomenal. Your uh, passion for these issues and for for service and for the country um, is manifest. And everybody sort of anticipated that you might have been in the cabinet had Hillary Clinton been elected president. Can you see yourself back in public service sometime in the future? Well, I'm I'm capped out, you know, because I can't run. I'm I'm an executive branch person by yes, by but nature. You could be, so. uh, but you could be. Uh, Appointed to uh, right, I could be appointed to something. Sure, I mean I won't run for anything, but um, but I will. I you know I I enjoy serving, and I'm certainly. I'm just. I know there are about like a hundred prospective Democratic candidates for president out there, and I just want them to. I want you to. Make your. I'm not going to make. Your case I, I, I want. I want you to make your case right no, now. No, I'm not going to do that. What about that, by the way? Before we go, um, where do you see this president? I mean, I know it, I'm. I'm almost embarrassed to ask because it's. Who would have guessed that Donald Trump was going to be the the Republican right. nominee? But I mean, do you have people who you are watching in this presidential 
early presidential speculation? All of them. Mm-hmm. See, she still has the moves. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer Granholm, thank you so much for your service and, and so for much, being thanks here for, with us. Yes, at, I'm so glad to be here at the Institute of Politics. Thanks for doing this for these students. Great to be here. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.